0: More often than not, the SSR Podcast is kind of a love fest. Usually, my guests choose a book they love. I probably love it too. And while we may find a few issues with it when coming at it from a 2019 perspective, the verdict at the end of most episodes is that rereading that book as i grown up was a pretty positive experience. See? A love fest. On episode 63, we shake it up a little. You'll hear a lot more about how my guests and I feel about this book over the next hour, but suffice it to say that feelings were mixed. The book is Cynthia Voigt's Homecoming, published in 1981 as the first installment in the Newbery-winning Tillerman Cycle series. I describe it now as a gritty, older alternative to the boxcar children. Four siblings, two brothers and two sisters, abandoned by their mother in a parking lot somewhere in New England, forced to pick up on the family road trip they had planned to go meet their distant Aunt Cilla, a road trip that they now must continue on foot. Our main character is Dicey, the oldest of the foursome she's accompanied by younger siblings James, Maybeth, and Sammy on their trek to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and later on their journey to Crisfields, Maryland, where they hope to meet the reclusive grandmother they had never even heard of. On this episode, we dig into the logistics of their extensive travels, discuss how Homecoming fits in among the list of other books we were reading in the 90s, and consider the ways in which mental health plays a quiet role in the story. We also talk about birth order, Catholicism, living meal-to-meal, gender identity, and cold hot dogs, which don't sound very appealing at all. This week's guest is Kelly Jensen, a former teen librarian who worked in several public libraries before pursuing a full-time career in writing and editing. Her current position is with Book Riot, where she focuses on talking about young adult literature. Her books include Here We Are, Feminism for the Real World, and Don't Call Me Crazy, a collection of art, essays, and words to launch a powerful and important conversation about mental health. It was named Best Book of 2018 by the Washington Post and earned a Schneider Family Book Award honor. Kelly's next anthology, Body Talk, will explore the physical and political aspects of having a body and will be out in fall 2020. You can follow Kelly on Instagram at Jensen and be sure to check out her work over on Book Riot. Please be sure to check out SSR on social media as well. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast. There are a few other ways that you can support the show if you're a big fan. First, you can leave a five star rating or review on iTunes. You can also share the podcast with friends, either in real life or by tagging SSR Pod in the screenshots of episodes you're listening to and posting to your Instagram stories. We also have a cute little merch line available at www.ssrpodcast.com/shop. You can get your SSR branded bookmarks, tote bags, and t-shirts there. You can also show your super fandom for the pod by becoming a Patreon sponsor over at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast. As a patron, you'll contribute a few dollars monthly to the podcast in exchange for a few exclusive rewards, including newsletters, bonus episodes, free shipping on merch, book club chats, and more. Shout out to all of the Patreon sponsors tuning in now. Just like you're a fan of SSR, I'm a fan of Libro.fm. FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libre FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. When I shop for audiobooks on Libro.fm, I support my local Brooklyn indie, Books Are Magic. Matt and I are coming up on our big trip to Thailand in November, and I'm starting to seriously strategize my reading for all of the hours we're going to be spending on the plane. A few audiobooks from Libro.fm are definitely going to be part of that strategy. Thanks so much to Libro.fm for continuing to partner with me. Now let's go to the show If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thanks for having me. Today we are talking about Cynthia Voigt's 1981 young adult novel, Homecoming. And I'm just going to say at the top of this conversation, Kelly, (laughs) you were right. (laughs) <laughs> and I love that <laughs> listeners here's what I mean by that so I'll let Kelly chime in as I tell this story because I want to know your side and kind of like why you said what you said about this book from the beginning but I sent Kelly the options or like my suggestions for us to talk about today and Homecoming by Cynthia Voigt was among them I remember that I loved this book as a kid it has shown up on a lot of like must read YA classic kid lit lists that I've seen and that's kind of how I compile my suggestions for the show so I sent it to you and I forget what else I had on the list, but you were like, I'm torn between picking some other book that I really like. And I also kind of want to pick Homecoming because I think I hated it. But is that okay? Like, I think you said something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, because I was under the impression it should be a book that like I liked, but like my visceral reaction was, oh, I hated that book so much. And I just like, you know, when you have this memory, that's like, visceral and you feel it in your whole body like that was the experience I had it was like I just remember every ounce of hate I had for this book
0: when I was young I think I said something to the effect of like okay great let's do the book you hate because more often than not we do kind of like do love fests for all of these books Mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that and obviously like it's great to celebrate books that we loved when we were kids and there are some redeeming qualities of this book I think and it has gotten like great awards like this is not a lost cause of a book so we can certainly note that in our conversation today but I also think like this is going to sound bad, but sometimes it's kind of fun to talk about things that we don't like. And yes. I sometimes get sick of repeating myself about how great these different books are, and hearing my guests repeat themselves about how great they mm-hmm. are. So it's kind of refreshing to bring you on. And <laughs> I thought that I was going to put up more of a fight because I had such great memories of reading this book. So I, I was like, so waiting for it too. I, I really was. You were ready for like the debate. We were going to go back and forth, and maybe we'll a little bit. I've tried to come up with some points for like both sides of the argument on this book, but I was. <laughs> (laughs) prepared to kind of like challenge you a little bit more and Mm -hmm. I'm gonna say right now like I don't I don't know how much I'm gonna challenge you (laughs) I do think you were right but I would love for you to share a little bit more about like any memory that you have of reading the book the first time maybe how old you were if you have any memory specifically like why you didn't like it anything that you can dig back into your childhood vault there that would be a great way to get started yeah so I
1: remember it was seventh grade and I was reading it for must have been a book report I think and like we got to choose our own own books. But I don't remember what made me pick this one or like why this is the one I I decided I was going to do. And all I remember is while I was reading it, I had like the, I had a different copy at the mass market paperback. Like I even remember how it felt in my hands. And I hated it from the second I started it. I was so bored getting through it was a challenge. And this is coming from somebody who in seventh grade read Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew for fun. So I you know, and and I remember just telling anybody who would listen how boring the book was and how much I hated it and I didn't get it and I didn't care. And when I saw it pop up as one of the options, like I I was right back in that seventh grade classroom, English classroom, just like complaining about how much I didn't like the book. And and I'm like well maybe you know maybe I something about it at that time didn't work for me maybe it will now
0: and uh spoiler alert my 7th grade self was pretty smart isn't it nice to know that your kid self was like kind of like knew what was going on. was very dialed in. Mm -hmm. Good for seventh grade Kelly. Uh, Do you remember if you did well in the book report at least? Like did your passionate hatred for the book at (laughs) least result in a good grade?
1: I have no idea. Like most of seventh grade English is like purposefully erased in my head because it was not a great great class, not a great teacher. I, I do remember, this is totally like off topic, but I do remember at one point in seventh grade, a group of us, wanted to scare her because we... Didn't like her. So I coordinated with a few of my friends and they like hid behind this big box in the classroom. And when the teacher came in, they jumped out and scared the ever living shit out of her. And it was awesome. Like that's what I remember from seventh grade hating this book, reading Tammy the Shrew, and
0: scaring my teacher. You covered a lot of ground in seventh grade. I did. I did. It's funny that you say that. And this is also unrelated, but I will mention it because I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I did not have great English teachers. I didn't either, yeah. And it's so weird that we've turned out to be, like, book people because, mm. I i mean, I had really great teachers in elementary school who I think really inspired my love of reading, but my middle and high school English teachers were not great. Like, I don't ever remember, I don't have a lot of strong, clear, like, positive memories of them, so kind of interesting that we've both, like, still become these passionate readers who work I, in books and love books, but didn't have, have those inspiring dear, teachers.
1: Yeah, I don't even remember who my, like, eight, no, I remember my eighth grade English teacher, but I don't remember anything about the class. And then in high school, I had like my freshman year teacher, she was not enjoyable. I didn't like her. And then I had three men, which was strange because I had so few male teachers, but the three male teachers I had for English, my sophomore year, I didn't care for him, but he did, he did inspire like enjoyment of performance. So like musicals and plays, which was nice. My junior year teacher, my uncle had had him because he was older. And all I remember is that my uncle was like don't mention my name or you are not going to pass that class and um he was, he was tough. He was really, really tough, but didn't inspire a love of reading at all. And then my final uh, teacher, he was fine, pretty unremarkable. But one thing I did remember is that he always turned to me for book recommendations and it was like, aren't you the English teacher here? Like, but yeah, it just feels a little backwards. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, no, it's funny because I had great teachers in other subjects, particularly, um,
0: I had a great math teacher, I had a great psychology teacher, but English teachers, mm. not really. <laughs> yeah, same. I feel like I had a great education, but just like not so much in English. So I found my way to homecoming in sort of a circuitous way, I think. So for a little bit of context, the book is the first in a series of seven, which is called this which is called the Tillerman cycle. <laughs> I can't believe there are seven of these. I expect that you didn't read any more. Like, is this where you no. stopped? Okay. So I found my way to Homecoming because I actually picked up Dicey's Choice first. And that's the second book. That's like the immediate sequel to this one. And I can't remember how I found it. I think it was must have been on like a table at Barnes & Noble or something. And I didn't realize that it was the second book in a series. And I didn't know that like I probably needed context from something else in order to appreciate it. But I did see that it had won the Newbery Medal. And I was like, oh, I think that's... That's a good thing. Like, even I know in middle school that that Mm -hmm. means something. So I started reading the book, and it was, like, clear to me that I had missed something. And true to form, because I'm very type A still, I was like, I don't know that I can keep reading this. Like, I have to read the first book first. (laughs) And so I found Homecoming. I probably took it out of the library because I was like, I've already gotten myself in way over my head, like, buying a book when I didn't have the right context for it. So I got it from the library, and I remember fucking loving it. (laughs) and now I'm so confused but here's what I can kind of this is what I'm guessing so Mm -hmm. this book is very long it's Mm -hmm. almost 400 pages and that's like in a trade paperback trim so the mass market paperback I remember having those also and those were like Mm. chunky but for some reason I don't remember it being so long As an adult, I was like, this is, like, the longest book I've ever read in my whole life. And I think there was something about it. Like, I loved the detail of the writing, which, as a grown-up, I'm like, this is really gratuitous and unnecessary. Mm -hmm. But I think I really found the style of Cynthia Voigt's writing kind of calming. And, like, the way she described literally every little thing that Dicey and her family does. Like, Dicey picked up the one thing and put it in the bag next to the other thing. And then she sat Mm -hmm. next to that, like it really is that level of detail and for some reason I found that really gratifying when I was younger. I'm wondering if maybe that was the way that I was taught to write. Like I think maybe in elementary school when I fell in love with writing and I started doing a lot of creative writing myself, I feel like I was praised a lot for doing that kind of thing. Like for really going into the excruciating detail of everything that was going on in my story. And I also feel and I wonder if you remember this at all. I feel like this is sort of reminiscent of of a lot of the books that I was recommended as a kid. I don't know like mm-hmm. I feel like all the books in this category, these, like, Newbery winners, these critically acclaimed books that were written in the 80s and 90s, had this almost, like, calming, rhythmic, detailed style. Mm-hmm. And... I think that I was used to that and I don't know. There was something about this book that I, I loved. It was like the right amount of adventure for me. Like they weren't doing anything like so crazy. They weren't like in world. They weren't could... doing anything. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they were like running away and like walking miles and miles, but they weren't like doing anything that interesting. No. So I don't know <laughs> if it felt like the right amount of sort of like harrowing situations for me. I don't know. I liked it a lot as a kid and I think I read more of the books in the series, which in hindsight like I spent a lot of time on this series, but there was another one that won a Newberry Honor, A Solitary Blue, which came later. Mm-hmm. So people liked this series, and I yeah. used to be one of them, and so I was kind of bummed to find out that I agree with you as an adult.
1: It's funny because I was I was posting about it on Instagram and the number of people who commented and said that was my favorite book as a kid or who had the same feeling I had of I really didn't like this book growing up. Like it was there is no middle ground. It was like people loved it or they really didn't love it. One of the folks who commented said, "Oh, you know, this was one of my favorites." And I said, "Oh, don't reread it as an adult." And he said, "Oh, I just recently reread it and still love Loved it and I was like well good for you because I I don't know I I wouldn't recommend it to somebody to revisit for that reason that you sort of get into that I think the memory of enjoying it as a kid is probably stronger than
0: the experience of revisiting it might be yeah, I agree. Most of the people that reached out to me when they saw that I was reading this book were more on your side. They were like, this was the most boring book that I ever read. And I think one of my <laughs> listeners actually has been reading along with the show and so has just finished Homecoming and messaged me and they agreed, like, so boring. I wonder too, for me, like, as you and I talk, as as we record this episode, I'm now at the end of like a really sort of marathon streak of reading and recording episodes so I've now Mm -hmm. recorded five episodes in 10 days which means I've also read five books for the podcast in 10 days and I I wonder if I'd had a little bit more time and space to read the book if I would have liked it more because I do think the things that I liked about it are sort of this like cozy nostalgic feeling like the writing did totally take me back to being in middle school and the kinds of books that I was reading at that time but I was really trying to get through it quickly so that I was ready for our conversation and so Mm -hmm. I was wondering like if I had a little bit more time and wasn't feeling like okay let's go like come on pick it up ladies like Let's move <laughs> a little faster. I wonder if I would have enjoyed it at least a little bit more. I think I just I wasn't in the right headspace to like actually enjoy this level of detail.
1: My husband was laughing because I was I was reading this on Sunday night and he goes, I can tell you're struggling with that book because you've cleaned the house and because of the way that you're sitting there as you're trying to read it. And I was like, I'm just trying to get through the book. And he's like, Usually you just quit and I said yeah, and I would quit. And I was so close to quitting, except like I kept going. Going because I was like, well, maybe there'll be something that redeems it, maybe. And the answer was no, nothing redeemed it for me. And I yet I kept going. To your point about you know reading that many in a row, I I've read so many books lately, um, in part because I do a couple of podcasts, so I have to read a lot um, to talk about these books. And I don't know. I don't know that giving it more time would have made it any better. I think you were onto something when you mentioned that there's this level of detail here that is really reminiscent of a lot of the books in the writing of that time. And I think one of the reasons that maybe I didn't like it at that point is that I was reading a lot of things that were either on Oprah's book list mm. or were Stephen King. Interesting. And the writing for both of those was very, very different than this. I don't want to say this is especially literary. I mean, I guess it is, but I don't care about the details. Part of my challenge this time through is I feel like as I was reading it, it's very much tell with very little show. And that doesn't work for me as a reader show me the thing we know that she's doing this this and the other thing but like it would have maybe resonated more with me if we actually saw her do the thing instead of her giving us the like laundry list of what she was doing
0: that makes sense i would agree with that so let's talk a little bit about the setup for yeah this book. So we have four siblings we have Dicey who's the oldest, she's 13 and then James is 10, Maybeth is 9 and Sammy is 6 and they're sitting in this parking lot somewhere in Connecticut with their mom and she's packed them these like brown bag lunches with an address written on all of them which is kind of our first sign that something funky is going on. They are going on this road trip to Bridgeport, Connecticut where Mama, as they call her has promised that they're going to reunite with this family member that they had never really heard of her name is Aunt Scylla and they're sitting in this parking lot. Mama is like, okay, I'm gonna be back. Could you mind? Dicey is her language around it and I pulled out this one quote from I would say the first 20 or 30 pages of the book because it, it took us this long to get out of the parking lot.
1: <laughs> um
0: the quote is mama must have gone away on purpose but she loved them loved them all why else the addresses on the bags why else tell them to mind Dicey mothers didn't do things like going off it was crazy. Was mama crazy? How did she expect Dicey to take care of them? What did she expect Dicey to do? Take them to Bridgeport of course dump it all on Dicey. That was what mama did she always did because Dicey was the determined sort it's in your blood Mama said, and then wouldn't explain. So we meet Dicey as she's kind of having this realization that, like, it's kind of been a little bit. Maybe mom's not coming back. What do I do now? And this kind of brings me to my first general concern about the book that I actually think would have been a pretty easy fix. Why couldn't Dicey have been like 15? 13 Mm -hmm. made it really hard for me to read her as an adult. And I think maybe I didn't pick up on this as a kid because 13 seemed like a reasonable, you could Mm -hmm. make responsible choices at 13. Like I can't remember if I read this when I was in late elementary school or middle school, but either way, 13, if you made it to 13, it seemed to me like you were a reasonable, responsible, mature human. And now I'm like, this is a lot of responsibility To be dumping on a thirteen-year-old, and she's handling it kind of like a champ. As boring Mm -hmm. as this book was, she takes on a great deal of responsibility and handles it like generally well. And I just wish that Cynthia Voigt had made her a year or two older, and it would have been easier for me to buy into it. I get that I'm not the target audience for this book anymore, Mm -hmm. and Cynthia Voigt probably doesn't care. Like, does a twenty-nine-year-old like think (laughs) that? Thirteen is a reasonable age for all these things to be happening but I will say that that was sort of hard for me to wrap my head around this time.
1: Yeah, I agree and I agree too because she is also then responsible for three siblings. Yeah. It's not like one sibling, it's three siblings and One of them, from everything we gather, she has some kind of cognitive disorder. So there's a lot of responsibility on her shoulders, and yet, like, there don't seem to be many challenges that come with that. Like, there are some. One of the things I struggled with that's related to this is that she is very, very mature for her age. But then there are these moments... And it only happens maybe three or four times in the book where we see her being 13, and it totally takes me out of the believability of her age. Um, So there's this particular scene that I marked because it just, it drove me bananas. It's like 250 pages in the book. And Dicey is on the beach with her younger brother and talking about girls' boobs jiggling. Yes. Oh my gosh. So.
0: I'm just going to read it because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. No, please. I marked this too. It really (laughs) drove me nuts. And I think there's like potentially a larger conversation to be had around like the gender part of this. But why don't you read it and we'll go from there. Yeah.
1: So they spent some time on the college lawn watching other people wander about. They spent some time on the main street, walking down to the foot, where the crowds were just as thick as they had been the night before. At a stall in the open market, Dicey bought little sandwiches made of flat sausages and biscuits. That reminds me, they also ate cold hot dogs for days, which is gross, that's for later. Nobody stared at them, there were lots of kids messing around and almost everybody, adults and children alike, wore jeans and shirts. Not full, but no longer hungry, the Tillerman sat by the water and stared. Lots of bare feet and long hair, like Provincetown. But also a lot of gold watches and big diamonds in rings. Boys and girls together, men and women, with arms around each other's waist. Too much lovey-dovey stuff, Sammy announced. Dicey noticed something else, too. Most of the young women wore no bras. (laughs) Their breasts went jiggle-jiggle as they walked. Finally, they could hold their tongues no longer. James, the girls aren't wearing bras. He turned red. I noticed. Do you see how they all go jiggle-jiggle? No, look. See the one with the long red hair? The pretty one with eye makeup? Jiggle, jiggle, jiggle. See what I mean? James giggled helplessly. Dicey joined in. Then she noticed a bridge down by the river leading over to another part of the city. From where they sat, it seemed like the other part was given over entirely to boatyards and docks. Let's go over there, she pointed. Let's go look at some boats. Do you think the jiggling hurts? James asked her. I think it would. How would I know, James? I don't have bosoms. Yeah, but you will. I'll tell you
0: about it if I do, Dicey said. I don't, what? Yeah, it was a what? lot. It was like a full page of conversation about this.
1: This was after an, a scene early on where Dicey
0: talks about her little brother's penis. Yeah, I circled that too. It was like, they were in the water. I think they were swimming. And he was, she was like, his small penis was like blowing around in the wind or something. <laughs> I don't mean to make light of it, everyone, but it was weird. It felt very out so, of place. That's yeah, That's the thing. I'm laughing is because it was so weird within the
1: context of the rest of the book. Yes. It was like this happened um, three times, maybe four times where I'm
0: just like, where did this come from? Right, this you know, we're gossip, gossip girl. Like we're not talking about people's bodies.
1: Yeah. And I think it, it made the whole idea of her being 13 more uncomfortable because we don't see her having these sorts of thoughts or conversations anywhere else in the book it's like it's so told to us rather than shown to us and then we get these weird asides where she is being 13 and strange and you know like conscious of these things but uh, I don't know that's the big takeaway I had from the book is like that particular scene which Doesn't seem like the best takeaway to have, but also the book was boring and that was less boring,
0: I guess. Yeah, it seemed kind of unfair (laughs) to her as a character to, like, Mm -hmm. give her that kind of thought so randomly in the middle of the book. My only thought when I first read it and thought it was weird was, like, okay, maybe this is kind of speaking to the setting of the book. Because the book was written in 1981, but I didn't know at first what year it was supposed to be set in. And so I wasn't sure if we were supposed to think, like, maybe it's, like, the mid-70s and they're in the city and they've never seen these, like, women with this particular fashion sense and maybe that's what <laughs> Cynthia Voigt's trying to get at but no I think the book is meant to take place in the 80s and not that it really yeah. matters because the way that she's talking about these women is kind of gross. The other mm. thought that I had was like maybe Cynthia Voigt is just trying to show that like these kids are so isolated and Dicey hasn't had like a female role model to have these conversations with because I think mm-hmm. we're led to believe that their mom is disengaged in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. she's supporting all four of these kids on her own clearly something has kind of snapped to for her where she's decided she can't do it anymore and she abandoned them in the parking lot in the car and so I I mean this is a stretch but maybe that's part of it It, but it does feel like it's sort of plopped in the middle of the book and there's not Mm -hmm. that many other situations where it feels like that's what the author's trying to say I thought that that conversation was interesting when you think about it along with some of the other like gender stuff that came up in the book and I didn't think much of this as a kid Cynthia Voight maybe didn't even think much of this as an author in the early 80s but there's a scene when there camping out at one of the like campgrounds or parks or something where they meet these other kids, Edie and Lou, who are runaways. And when Dicey meets them for the first time, they just kind of assume that Dicey is a boy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is because she has short hair. And that's how it's explained that, you know, I think we're meant to imagine that she sort of presents in a very male way. And she mm-hmm. hasn't had puberty yet. And she keeps her hair this way. And she's explaining to her siblings that she kind of went along with these other kids and said that she was a boy. And she, I think, called herself Danny, and they're asking her why and she says it's safer to be a boy than a girl people leave boys alone more and I don't know that there's more to that but I thought that it was interesting that that wasn't then explored later in the book and also like Mm -hmm. we didn't explore this conversation about like jiggly boobs and bras like there are these like little nuggets throughout the book about like I wonder what Dicey thinks about being a girl and someday being a woman and like I just don't know if she was sort of uncomfortable in her body because she didn't have somebody helping her to navigate puberty or what was going on, but I thought that that was kind of interesting that we saw a few moments of that.
1: Yeah. And there was, if I'm remembering correctly, because this book was 12 decades long, right. um, there, there was a scene early on where she pretends to be a boy. This yeah. is before she's a It's like the gender stuff goes back and forth, but you're right. It's not really something that they dive into at all. And it's interesting that in the family, there are no men. The father is, we don't know what happened to the dad or where he ended up. Their moms, brother died in the war and then the grandpa had died four years prior to the time that they go and find grandma. So there aren't any male role models in this book either. And the women in the book are, for lack of a better term, extremely broken. All of them which is fascinating. I guess one of the things, one of the redeeming things I can give to this book is that it's a nice look at how messed up everybody is because there's there's no one in here who doesn't have some kind of challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of mental illness going
0: on in here, lots of cognitive disorders going on, even if they're not labeled or called that at all. Well, and also I think it it points to almost this like cycle thing that happens in families and mm-hmm. how hard it can be to break the cycle and how families branch off in these interesting ways and how that can like really break down relationships. Like when the kids finally make it to Bridgeport and they find that Aunt Scylla is actually dead, which is sad because they had been hoping that she would be the one to make all of this okay for them, they do find that her daughter Eunice is there and Eunice kind of explains to them the whole family history, which is that her mom, Scylla, had essentially stopped speaking to the Tillerman's grandmother, Abigail. And I think, you know, we're kind of seeing that Abigail went down this road where she had what seems to be, like, a very abusive, scary husband and was really following a different path than Scylla and her family, who, like, had become very devout Catholics and were living in this mm-hmm. very, like, straight-laced, mainstream kind of way, whereas Abigail kind of was just, like, trying to survive and, like, keep her family together in the midst of this, like, tyrant of a father. and. And they talk about how, yeah, Abigail's kids, like, One of them went off to the war and died and there's another son who like I don't know that we really know what happens and then obviously Dicey's mom has kind of like gone her own way in a less mainstream manner than Eunice has gone and so I think it's showing like look at this family they have split off into two different directions and this is what happens Mm -hmm. when you go one way and this is what happens when you go the other way and on the Tillerman side where Dicey and her siblings exist there's been more of this like cycle of mental illness and poverty and like how hard it is to get out of that and how mm-hmm. you know both of these women Abigail, their grandmother, and then their mother. Like one of them had this scary abusive husband, and one of them promised never to get married because they saw how hard that was to live in and found a man that they loved, but like never got married, and so then ran the risk of ending up alone. And so I think it's just the cyclical thing is interesting from an adult perspective. Mm
1: -hmm. And the one um, Eunice wanted to be a nun, like that was her whole thing, is she really wanted to go the complete opposite way, and then that didn't work
0: out. And then when the kids left, they're like, well, maybe she'll become none now. The whole religion thing kind of blew my mind too. There's a lot of religion in this book. So there's like probably close to 100 pages, maybe 50, 75, when the kids are living with Eunice and when she first meets them she's like panicked because she is not sure that she can support them and she has this weird attitude where I think she feels obligated partially because she feels like she has to be a quote unquote good Christian and like take them in Mm -hmm. and do the right thing. But she doesn't treat them very nicely and she Mm -hmm. has weird expectations of them and she kind of just wants to like slot them her existing life and as you mentioned she had had this plan to become a nun and I just there were parts of this whole portion of the book that I found kind of funny because I think it, it almost felt like a satire of people that like live and die by their religion because mm-hmm. Eunice was like so committed to she was so committed to the Catholic Church and nothing else. Like, she couldn't see what she was actually doing. Like, she couldn't see how she was actually treating the kids. And she couldn't see how ridiculous it was that, like, she couldn't make more practical decisions about what was going to happen to them. I don't know. I thought and, that that was interesting. And she was so dependent on... um Father Joseph, Joseph,
1: yeah, to make all of her decisions, too. Like she called him in right away. And then he did the whole to me, it seemed like bait and switch where he did the thing where he's like, oh, we're going to take care of you. But also we're going to call the cops, which is like what the kids didn't want to happen because they were so worried about being split up about what would happen to each of them if the cops got involved. But fortunately, I guess Father Joseph says, you know, James is too old to be adopted. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was a weird, yeah, it was a weird thing because he sort of steps in and takes over the decision making, even though it didn't seem, in my opinion, he was doing anything that actually served the kids well,
0: yeah, I don't know what Cynthia avoids religious leanings were, but I don't think that this is a very flattering picture of Mm-mm. of the Catholic community and how they do or don't help the people around them in need.
1: Also, just the view, like, it's here that we get the idea that something might be wrong with Maybeth. But the way that they talk about her cognitive
0: issues, like, put me on edge. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Um, because they're very quick to, like, try to put these kids, to sort of label the kids. So, mm -hmm. Maybeth, they are using the R word to describe her, which is not a word that I want to say on the podcast. but. Very but quick it is used use in the word. book yeah. number of times. Many times. And to be fair as terrible as it is like I do think that that was a word that was the language used of the time of the yeah. time so I don't think that the author was trying to be offensive or disrespectful no. yeah. but it's not a word that you know I necessarily want to say I think we can all guess what the word is. They use that word to describe her and Eunice is sort of like thinking that she might try to give things a shot with all four of them and she's basically like I can handle dicey because she's self-sufficient and she like cleans my house which was very weird and James is smart and like minds his own business and she really loved Maybeth because she was she's beautiful like that's the kind of interesting Mm -hmm. thing about Maybeth as a character and I think when I when I actually like step back and look at the book as a whole Maybeth might be like one of the more interesting parts of it because Maybeth is presented as this like beautiful little angel who knows how to communicate with her family and kind of has her niche among her siblings but really struggles in social situations and has had a really hard time in school and as you've said there's a lot of talk about her potential cognitive issues and Eunice is still like she thinks she can handle it just because she thinks Maybeth is so cute and she wants to show her off at church. Mm -hmm. She like buys her dresses and like parades her around with all of her lady friends because I think Eunice is like not meant to be particularly attractive and Mm -hmm. Cynthia Voight like doesn't really do her any service with her physical description of her and so it's like Eunice, who's never had a family herself, has probably never felt that great about herself. Like, this beautiful little girl falls into her lap and she can parade her around, but she also is just, like, crossing her fingers that she can keep everything together with Maybeth's schooling and, like, helping her to actually grow as a human. So that was a little twisted where, like, Eunice was very quick to write off Sammy, the youngest sibling, just because he has some aggression issues and is really stubborn and has been fighting with other kids at school. And she's basically like, well, I can't deal with him. Like, he can leave. Like, maybe he can go to another home. (laughs) But she is happy to try to navigate Maybeth potential struggles down the road just because she's cute.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I just thought the whole dynamic between Dicey and Eunice was bizarre, though. Like, the fact that... Oh. Like, Dicey was expected—like, it was, like, within a few hours, it seemed as though they had worked out this deal where, like, it was a foregone conclusion that as long as Dicey, quote-unquote, keeps house for Eunice, they can stay. And, again, maybe that was, like, a convention of the time where, like, that was a thing. I I don't know. It felt very strange to me that, like, Dicey was just expected to stay five steps ahead of everything around the house so that they could stick around. Yep. Yep.
1: And again, she's 13. Even 13-year-olds 13 in, you know, 1981, I don't think had that much expectation put upon
0: them to, like, yeah. <laughs> make their keep, you know? Well, the weird thing about her age, too, in addition to the fact that, like, I had a hard time seeing her as 13 based on what she was doing, I thought it was so weird the way that older adults, like, treated her as an adult. And there was one scene in particular where um, Maybeth is having trouble at school, and I guess one of the nuns, asks her who her guardian is and Maybeth says Dicey and the nuns call Dicey in on behalf of Maybeth to like, talk about some of the issues mm-hmm. that are going on. And I made a note that was like, "Well, why are they talking to her like she's an adult? And we find out a page or two later that like the nun was confused and actually didn't realize that Dicey was only a teenager. And yet she continues with the conversation. Like, it's yeah. not like she's like, oh my bad, you're not actually a grown up, um, let me find somebody older in your family who can address mm-hmm. this. Like They actually all look to Dicey as though she's a 20 or 30 year old responsible legal guardian to these kids and there are a few other scenarios like that where not only did dicey just seem like she had fallen into these responsibilities but the grown-ups in her orbit were more than happy to treat her that way
1: which is like i guess part of my big issue with the book is this we actually don't get to know the characters before mama leaves so we don't have any context for what their characterization is prior to like being thrown in the situation situation so we don't get to know if dicey is really sort of this leader if she's really the glue that keeps her family together or if this is just a situation that's thrust upon her and if that's the case it's hard to see her growth i guess is the is the thing i'm struggling with right like in most books the characters have an arc and I think from start to finish in this one, she is just the responsible one, and there's really not a lot of places where we get to see any other side of her, um, except for those couple of uncomfortable places that we we've already talked about. And the fact that there aren't any adults who are looking at her as anything other than like a responsible adult herself, I think only furthers the fact that we don't get to see her as anything other than this, too. Like, the perception that we're given of Dicey is the same perception that the adults in the book have. I wonder if if I'm saying that, coming to that as an adult now, and if I Felt when I was young reading it that like it made sense she was that way and didn't change a whole lot. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It was a little flat.
0: I I think that's true. But each of the characters sort of had like one adjective. So like Dicey's the responsible one, James is the smart one. Yeah. Maybeth is like the sweet, innocent one, and Sammy is stubborn. Like we always hear Mm -hmm. about how stubborn Mm -hmm. he is. And I think I think that's true. It was like all Dicey's whole identity was tied up in how responsible she was and how Great she was with her siblings. I will say that I am the oldest of a whole bunch of siblings. So I relate somewhat to just kind of like this feeling that she has to protect them and to do her parents proud. And I think, especially growing up, I had moments where I felt as though like so much of my identity within my family was contingent on my ability to be a good sister. And I think especially when you're like the oldest and all of these other kids come after you, there's this inherent feeling that like, okay, I'm now defined in relation to these new kids. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that's true or not, I mean, I I don't actually think that that's how my parents felt about me, but I think when you're like a teenager and you're angsty anyway, sometimes it can feel like that and it feels like Dicey's taken that on so much, especially because she doesn't have any other, she's not accountable to parents right Mm -hmm. now. So it's not Mm -hmm. like she's trying to please any parents, but it's almost like she's just so locked into that mindset that it's the only thing she knows how to do. And I I related to the fact that she really thrived on the sense of having responsibilities because that's how I am, even as an adult like I feel best when there are things that I know that only I can do and maybe that's like an ego thing but I got that about her but I think you're right like I wish that I had gotten more things about her and I was looking for just like book club questions today to Mm -hmm. ask you just because I knew that we both had maybe not so many other things to say about the book (laughs) although we've proven me wrong there we've had a lot to say but I found this interesting question and I love your thoughts on it do you like the fact that Dicey was the perspective that we saw this story through because we're spending so much time talking about her. Yeah. Why do you think she was the obvious choice? I mean, I have to say maybe it's because she's the oldest, but would mm-hmm. you have preferred to see the story through another character? That's a, a, a
1: really interesting question. I guess, like, one of the things I was thinking about as I read this is I would have loved to hear the mother's story. Yeah, because we don't get to know much about mom other than she abandons the kids and that she ends up in an institution. But like, clearly something got her there. And, and there's a lot that can be said about just our chemical builds and what can lead to mental challenges with that but also like clearly something else is going on in the family that only added you know fuel to this this fire and so i know that the story from mom's point of view would not have made it a teen book but as an adult like that's what I'm curious about um like what point do you have to get to that you abandon your kids and lie to them because I don't believe she did it in any cruel way I think she did it because this was the thing she thought was best for them like she couldn't provide them anymore and she must have had some faith that her kids were smart enough to figure it out and, and this is I guess being a really optimistic view about it but to that question and I understand why Dicey was, was the one in, to lead it all. She's the one who makes the, the choice for them to go on this walk. She's the one who decides like where they're going to go. Had it been from any other character's perspective, I think it would have been a lot of following along. Yeah. And just just from what we have here in 400-some pages, not many of them fight back against Dicey either. Certainly there's some stubbornness and some questioning, but like they kind of go along with it, you know? And I don't know, had the story been told
0: from one of the other characters, that it would have been any more interesting. I think that's fair. <laughs> and, and we haven't even touched on what their ultimate destination is in the book. Although weirdly, I feel like I have less to say about that because I found the Eunice part of the book so interesting but Dicey does ultimately make the decision that she's going to try to like go find the grandmother Um, Mm -hmm. she's gotten information from the police in Bridgeport that their grandmother is not interested in connecting with really any humans. She's locked all the doors when people have tried to approach her. They just don't have a lot of information about her and mm-hmm. so they're not advising the kids to go find their grandmother but Dicey decides that that might be the best thing for them because she's seeing that Eunice is getting cold speed about maybe keeping all four of the kids together and so she's really worried about being split up. As an aside, I don't know very much about the foster care system but I do think that this book is a really interesting peek into like what some construction of that looks like and to mm-hmm. and to how scary it is to be part of that system or to find yourself potentially on the edge of being part of that system. And again, I don't know how fair of a portrayal it is, but um, if any part of it's true, it's a scary world to be in as a kid.
1: Yeah, and I think especially in the '80s when it wasn't as talked about as it is now. You know, like it's still the foster care system is still not as like I don't want to say accessible, but we don't know as much about it as as I wish we did. But certainly more now than in the '80s. And part of it might also just be being adults and seeing it on the other side as adults. Um, I don't know about you, but. I know a number of people who are foster parents, and so I know, like, as adults, what they go through. I can only imagine, like, the absolute fear that the kids would have um, and and not having information about what that experience might be like, other
0: than knowing that it could mean you're split up. Right, and so that's what Dicey is, like, really trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. So she initially was going to go by herself, but... Her siblings decide that they're going to go to. They're going to do this together. There's some kind of harrowing adventures that go on between Bridgeport and Crisfields, Maryland, which is where their grandmother lives, the scariest of which is a run-in with this farmer named Mr. Rudyard who they've kind of hired themselves out to work for for the day because money is constantly an issue in this book Mm -hmm. and to make a long story short probably like 30 pages uh, (laughs) worth of story short the farmer takes a very creepy interest in Maybeth because as we've mentioned she's Mm -hmm. really pretty and the kids realize that this is a dangerous situation for them now with Mr. Rudyard and they have to like run away and there's dogs chasing after them and Dicey steals the car and they kind of like split in all different directions and meet back up again and then Mr. Rudyard tries to lie and tell people that they're his foster children. It's a whole thing and actually very scary and probably scarier than I gave it credit for as a kid. Like I understood more like why this was really terrifying this time around. But they do eventually make it to Crisfield with the help of this band of circus performers which I thought was kind <laughs> of a fun touch. Like it was like a nice way to mix it up like it was this very long <laughs> trek through New England on the highway and and then now and we like get to hang out the circus. Stops at college campuses, right? And, yeah. We're taking a tour of the like northeastern colleges. But then they get to hang out these circus performers, and they end up helping them get to Crisfield, which I thought was kind of fun. I would have loved to actually hear more about that.
1: And the um, the owner of the circus was a black man. Yeah, which that was, was the only character of color who came up. And uh, I don't know about you, but I held my breath. I was like, "What's going to happen?" And nothing happens.
0: Like it's fine. Yeah, he's nice. He does yeah. his own thing. Like I think we're supposed to see him as the. This example of like it's okay to not always do what other people do and mm-hmm. in the same way that dicey and her family feel marginalized because of their social status he feels marginalized because of his race and he's figured out how to make the best of it and to like make his own way and maybe dicey can do the same like i think there's probably a lesson intended in there but they do ultimately make it to maryland grandma's scary like super scary. Dicey's offer to her grandma is like, maybe I could work for you. Which, again, maybe this is like just (laughs) a different language around how kids relate to adults in the 80s. But I thought that was interesting that she was like, oh, well this will be a very normal way for me to kind of introduce myself to my grandma who I don't know Mm -hmm. if I want to out myself to her yet that I'm related to her. She's like, I'll just offer to work for her. Like, her grandmother is not looking for work, I I don't think. So Dicey basically is like, give me jobs to do. We find out that her grandmother knew who she was the whole time. And she's very resistant to letting the kids stay. Originally, she only agrees to let them stay for the night. And Dicey decides that having nothing to do with the grandmother as a human whatsoever, this life on the farm could be really healthy for her and her siblings. So she's going to do anything she can to be able to stay longer. And so she's like, guys, like, let's do everything we can so that we are (laughs) indispensable to grandma Mm -hmm. Abigail, because she doesn't want them to call her grandma at first. And every day they just come up with like new jobs to do. And conveniently, like one day it rains and they can't travel in the rain. And then Maybeth gets hurt and they don't want to travel with Maybeth hurt. And it was really heartbreaking. There was one scene where, like, they had gotten up early one morning and they were going to cut the honeysuckle away from the building. And they were, like, feeling really great about it and they were going to be so helpful. And then Abigail was like, uh, actually, I really liked that honeysuckle and you really fucked it up by doing that without asking." <laughs> nice and that yep. did kind of make my heart break a little bit because you do, I can just picture, like, me as a little kid thinking that I yeah. was, like, going to surprise an adult by doing something so helpful without being asked. And yes. then it's like, no, you screwed that up big time. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and ultimately, like, big surprise in the end Abigail decides that they're going to be allowed to stay largely because James the smart one in the group has come up with some entrepreneurial (laughs) ideas that they can do to like earn more money. Shocker like the smart Christmas tree farm yeah like okay dude you know how long it takes to grow a Christmas tree? I don't really know but I would imagine like longer than a year which is when your grandmother needs the money. So yeah they get to stay. Dicey's going to restore a boat because we find out that she has this like deep love of being on the water and I think that that was a big part of Dicey's Like, I remember that a big chunk of that book is about her bonding with the grandmother over, like, how to restore the boat, how to sail the boat. And that's sort of, like, the metaphor for her freedom from all of the stresses (laughs) that have bogged her down in this journey. Can we talk about the food in this book? Yes. There's so much food. But also so little food. There's so much food.
1: There's so little food. And the choices in food are so 13-year-old in charge. Donuts. For the example, hot dogs, hot dogs, yeah. It was funny because, like, the first thing that they decide they're going to buy, um, it was, like, milk and then hot dogs for their travel. And I was like, are they not going to think about how to cook the hot
0: dogs? And then I realized, no, they're going to eat them cold. I guess you can eat. I don't like yeah, hot dogs, but can't. I guess you can. I don't know.
1: It, it just, like, struck me not just, like, that was the thought that they had, but then that must have been how they were eating at home. True. If if they were as poor as it sounds like they were, it's very possible that like they didn't have heat to cook the hot dogs, or like mom was always working, or mom just like couldn't you know muster the the energy to like cook, so she'd be like go have a hot dog from the fridge. That was that was so weird to me because then later on she is talking about buying meat and she's like oh we can't buy it because we don't know if we'll have anywhere to cook it, and then she looks at the cost of it and ends up not buying it because it was too expensive. Yeah, that's but true. Ice cream, french fries, milkshakes. Kids in charge. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're very aware of what they're eating. Um, <laughs> we're very aware of how much money Dicey has at all mm-hmm. times. And I get that like Cynthia White was trying to show that money is like hyper important to these kids who are yeah. out on their own. And I do think that like as an adult who in all reality, like doesn't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to be able to mm-hmm. eat. Day to day, and I didn't worry about that as a kid. Like seeing this 13 year old, this theoretical 13 year old, really like doing these calculations to figure out exactly how much food she could buy. And I think, especially like given the way that inflation has changed the way you think about money, like she's feeding her family on like increments of a dollar and fifty cents. Like that's how she's buying Mm -hmm. her food. And so that was kind of shocking to me. It was a lot like it got very tedious because we were hearing about it all the time. But like the (laughs) first few times I was like kind of fascinated by it and it is a reminder obviously of the fact that like there are people that are really struggling to that extent and living below the poverty line and having Mm -hmm. to figure out how to make that kind of money stretch. And also this concept of like what is enough. Like there's one line where Dicey is talking about. I think she has like a dollar and seventy-five cents left. I don't know the exact amount, but she was like, mm-hmm. "It would be enough." And just this idea of like, enough is really what you make it, and mm-hmm. people get by on a lot less than what I think is barely enough on a month when I'm feeling pressed mm-hmm. for money. So I think like looking at it from a perspective perspective, it's like a helpful thing for kids to see, and also like to see a kid that can be self-sufficient with money. She can read a map, which is hilarious in hindsight that, like, there's so much of this book (laughs) is about, like, I need to go buy a map. I'm going to read this map. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to wash a window so that I can get a paper map. Like... You and I, I would assume you too, like we grew up in a time when like you did go buy road maps to go on a road mm-hmm. trip and like yep. there was always somebody in the car who was reading the map and the fact that that was a thing that was a big part of my life as a kid that's now completely out the window, I was just reminded <laughs> of that in this book. Like, yeah. oh right, like it used to be a big deal whether or not you had the map.
1: To come back to the food, I was just flipping through and uh, they hated cousin Eunice's food. Oh, Even yeah. though she was feeding them, there's this great line about um, they ate dinner at Burger King. Hamburgers, French fries, milkshakes—it tasted good to them after weeks of cousin Eunice's frozen dinners and pot pie.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> pot pie actually sounds great. <laughs> I'll take a pot pie. But you please. have kids, like that is like the perfect like kid thing, yeah. you know? Yeah, the way they're looking at their food is so different than maybe you or I would look at yeah. our food. Yeah. So you've kind of alluded to your answer to this question, but I'd love for you to put a fine point on it as we start to wrap up. Has coming back to this book for the SSR podcast. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Um, Has it... I know I, it feels weird to even phrase this question way like I usually phrase it, but I'm going to do it anyway for laughs. Has it made you love the book all the more or has mm. it not held up for you in some way? Has it ruined it for you in some way? And maybe we're just talking like relative to the first time you read it. I mean, we know that you don't like it, but how does it compare reading it as an adult?
1: The thing that I think I took away was that my seventh grade self was pretty smart. Yeah. And I think that that was really the big takeaway was thinking about, this very vivid memory I had in seventh grade and like, okay, was I, um, I don't want to say the same person, but like, did I have similar thoughts and experiences then as I do now, many, 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 many years after seventh grade. And the answer is like, yeah, I do. Um, at least when it comes to this book and that's kind of cool. It's like, it's this conversation with my younger self, maybe she was a little overreactive, but like, who isn't in seventh grade? If you're not dicey, you know, But right. <laughs> like, he's so practical. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's like if, you know, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. I didn't like it anymore. I almost quit and almost like made that part of what I was going to talk about is how I couldn't get through it, but I did. Thank I you. yeah, yeah. And um I do wonder if this story were revisited now, you know, almost 30, almost 40 years um, after it was originally published, if she would write it differently. like Because I, I feel like style-wise, it's told in a way that is very 80s and sort of the way that children's lit. I guess this is YA. It says 12 and up. Um, YA was written at that time. I wonder if now that we've seen such a new golden age in YA, if, if the writing would be different, if it would be more present, if it would be shorter, if it would be um, more emotionally intense as opposed to sort of this is what happened then this is what happened then this is what happened yeah that's just I guess that's the thing I was curious about is like if the author would go back and rewrite it like how would it be different for today's today's young readers Um, and also I really do think I want to know like the mom's story and why why she made the choices she did and that could just be because I'm you know, I'm probably mom's age, if not a little older. And like, what would drive somebody to to make those choices like you don't do that for fun you know and as a kid like reading this I suspect my thoughts as a kid were probably like man that mom is awful who would do that now as somebody who's older my thought is like man I feel sorry for any mom who has to make that kind of choice and like the desperation you must feel to do
0: that yeah I'd like to read her story too and as we all know I think now I I feel like this book (laughs) is does not hold up (laughs) <laughs> I feel like it's kind of ruined. Although I do think that, like, in talking about it with you, I'm reminded a little bit more about why I may have liked it. And so that feels mm-hmm. good to sort of, like, yeah. be like, I wasn't totally wrong. It's just that now I'm a different kind of reader. Yeah, and, 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 my and you know what? Have changed. I-
1: Yeah, I could totally see why this is appealing for people, which I think, you know, maybe in seventh grade, I wouldn't have had that sort of like generosity, but I see why people loved it. And I see why it holds such value for so many readers. But like, I'm still a reader who doesn't. Care for it, and and that's okay.
0: Like yeah. we all have different tastes, you know. Not your thing. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Other than homecoming, I mean, I know that you read a lot of books. But what have you been reading lately that you would especially recommend to our listeners? It can be YA. It doesn't have to be whatever you think has been really great.
1: And this is stressful. I hate this question. I know. Um, every summer I try to do some kind of like reading project, and this summer I did a whole project devoted to reading the work of Norma Klein, who. She was writing about the same time as Cynthia Voigt wrote this one um, in the late 70s, early 80s, and she was a Judy Bloom contemporary and she wrote these really sort of groundbreaking YA books that at times veer a little bit too soap opera-y, but they really dig into topics that writers at the time weren't we're writing about and particularly we're writing about teens and sex and sexuality as well as these really interesting family dynamics that I don't remember seeing much growing up. I've, I've talked before at Book Riot about Dawn from the Babysitter's Club being the first girl that I remember seeing who had divorced parents and Norma Klein was writing these these sorts of families before then but I, I never read them growing up. I didn't love all the books didn't think they were all that great. Sometimes Some of them were just downright boring or weird, but for the most part, they were really cool. And I think that readers who would revisit some of her bigger hits now would be really pleasantly surprised, not only how much they hold up, but just the ways that they allowed teens to be teens and explore what it means to grow up in in families that aren't the sort of two-parent healthy relationships, but, but that are different across a whole variety of spectrum. There's one book in particular, I think it's Taking Sides, where the main character is the daughter of divorced parents. Her dad has this female partner and her mom decides that she is going to date this other woman which in the 80s was just radical. That is and very progressive. And and it was one of those books that now like I'm reading with my breath held because I'm like okay what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You're so used to seeing like tragedy or hate and no like it's a loving relationship it's positively portrayed Um, the father who is not super into it and tries to like scare the daughter from going to you know be influenced by that relationship, like that doesn't come to fruition. Instead, we just see this super healthy relationship between mom and her partner, and it's great. Like, it was really pleasantly surprising and held up really, really well. I don't think it's called Taking Sides because that's the book sitting here. Of course, I can't remember the actual title of it now. But anyway, so that was a long winded way of saying I think some readers check out some of Norma Klein's. Uh, the ones that are easy to get are probably her best ones. Domestic Arrangements is one, Mom the Wolfman and Me, which has some really bizarre scenes in it as well but also they make perfect sense in context of the book
0: itself i'm not familiar with her so i'll have to check her out too and i yeah don was also the first character that i read with divorced parents and somebody who had divorced parents as a kid that was really refreshing to me so i'm very curious about those books so thank you for the recommendation
1: Yeah. Interestingly, I'm working on this longer. It'll be out by the time this podcast comes out. But um, I did this really in-depth series of pieces about the Babysitter's Club and sort of its its history and why it remains relevant. And I talked with one of the executive producers on the upcoming Netflix um, adaptation, and she was talking about characters who were ahead of their time that readers if they went back and revisited now would probably feel totally different about and Dawn was her big one and she said you know Dawn was this environmental activist and very involved in social justice thing she said that I think at the time that those books came out weren't as big for young readers whereas now like you're gonna read them and be like whoa she really was like ahead of the game and um I felt that way about just her parents being divorced. So I haven't reread any of hers. I reread um Christy's Great Idea. So I'm like, I've gotta get Dawn's books back back in my reading rotation because I'm I'm excited to see that. She stuck with me as as a reader who grew up with divorced parents. So I'm, I'm eager to see sort of her social justice angles, too, um, now as an adult and and knowing how how teens are today and just see, like, where else where else she really resonates.
0: Yeah, I do think Dawn is ahead of her time. I re- We did an episode on Christy's big idea for the show, and then we did one of the, like, hilarious super specials, which was <laughs> just, like, a romp and so silly and funny. But we're doing oh, yeah. um, a Claudia book coming up, so I'll have to make <laughs> sure that we do a Dawn. book one of these days and I'll make a note of that Thank you so much for sharing that I'm looking forward to reading more of those pieces (laughs) that you're that you're working on yeah and
1: they're so exciting I think people love talking about the babysitter's club which is not surprising um but yeah it was it was really cool to talk to some of the folks who had a part when the books came out and they are part of the book's real resurgence in
0: in our contemporary like reading reading world. Yeah, I went to a panel at BookCon this year with like the, the team that's narrating The Audible. Mm -hmm. versions and Ann M. Martin was on it and um, just like to hear her talk about it and then to hear the voices like I I haven't listened to them but I think it's just it's cool that all this is happening and I'd be lying if I said it wasn't extra fun to have started this podcast a year ago and to kind of be (laughs) like trying to contribute to the conversation a little bit yeah I've done several babysitters club titles and I assume that we'll Mm -hmm. do more going forward so go babysitters club well Kelly thank you so much for your time I'm going to include links to the books that you mentioned in the show notes for this episode I will also include a link to Homecoming, although I'm not sure that we really sold it to anybody this time around. (laughs) I will, of course, include links to your books as well. Here We Are, Feminism for the Real World, Don't Call Me Crazy, and then I Know You Have a New Book Coming Out Next Fall. So, listeners, be on the lookout for that. And, uh, yeah, it was so fun talking with you about this book. I think I was right that sometimes it's just as fun to talk about a book that you're not crazy about. Yeah,
1: for sure. And Because I think in part two, once you start talking about it, you do find the things that, like, have value and merit and, like, even if you don't like the book you know like who the reader is for the book you know like a book doesn't win an award because it doesn't have some value in it hopefully but it just might not be for you
0: yeah we can't all like everything and that's okay exactly exactly thanks kelly have a good day you too thank you bye bye thanks so much for listening to the ssr podcast